In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. I'm sorry, just having a little technical issue. Um, so we've been uh, studying in the book, The Diabolic Wars, by His Holiness Pope Shenouda II. Um, last time we spoke uh, about some of the characteristics or the nature of the diabolic wars, and we started to speak about the devil's attributes in the war. I'm just going to review them real quick. The first one is we said the devil is an unceasing fighter. He doesn't give up. The second is that he is powerful, more powerful than us, and our strength comes from God who protects us from him and is able to defeat him, but not from we ourselves. Three, he's experienced in fighting and knows our nature. He has a lot of experience dealing with human beings. He knows our weaknesses. He knows how to get us to fall. Four, he is intelligent and resourceful. He is very crafty. Um, we know that he was able to make the first man and woman to fall, and he was able to bring corruption into the whole world. Um, he's very resourceful. Number five, he is a liar. What he tells us is not true. Um, everything he says is a deception. He presents something to us, makes it look appealing and good, but in reality, it is actually something that is harmful. Six, he is persistent, meaning he doesn't give up. He continues to war against us again and again and again, even if people are able to overcome him. He doesn't get discouraged. Maybe very different than us. We get discouraged very easily when we fail. He doesn't get discouraged. He continues to war again and again and again. And then the last point we mentioned last time is that he is the accuser. He always accuses us before God, and he accuses us to make us feel that after we fall, there is no point in getting up again because the fall is inevitable, or that God cannot forgive us, or that we are sinners and nothing more, and so there is no point in even trying to fight and just accusing us um, all day. That's, that's where we stopped last time. Um, more than that, he has numerous talents, meaning he has knowledge of the Bible. He has knowledge of psychology. He has um, many, many, angel, many, many demons that are fighting with him. Um, he knows how to express himself in culture. For instance, where do we see a lot of demonic uh, kind of influence? We see it in our culture. We see it in our society. We see it in music. We see it in art. We, you know, we see it um, even in heresies that maybe come about in the church. Um, the devil knows how to infiltrate us because he has many, many talents. Also, he is cruel. He doesn't care at all about the human being. He doesn't care about their feelings. He doesn't care about what happens to them. You can see very much in the story of Job that the devil was very, very willing to destroy this man. He wanted to make him to suffer in the cruelest, most possible way. You know, like some people talk about hell, and they'll ask, you know, is hell really as bad as maybe it is portrayed? Well, actually, look how the devil makes our lives on earth hell, someone like Job, in the complete misery that he experienced in his life. How much worse is the kind of separation from God and the complete absence of good that would be found in a place like hell? He is extremely cruel. He has no compassion. And his whole focus is to destroy the human being from beginning to end. He is malicious in his pretended kindness, meaning what? Like he doesn't want you to feel bad about yourself when you sin, and he helps excuse it to improve your mood um, in the sense that he, he wants us to take lightly sin. 
right? He is malicious in his pretended kindness. Whenever we fall into sin, he will come and say, oh, this isn't a big deal. You should, uh, you know, th this is okay, actually, if you commit this sin. Um, and God understands and God is merciful and so on. He, it, it appears like kindness and it appears as though he is on our side at times. But even when it appears that he's on our side, he is actually um, against us. He is envious, meaning he is envious of what we have and who we are. He's envious of the gifts that God has given us. He's envious that God has made us in his image. He's envious that God shares his glory with us. He is envious um, of us. Um, and, and he wants the world to be separated from this God who created us, who gives us all these good things because he is envious. He wanted to take the place of God. He wanted to sit on the throne of God. He wanted to be that. And he sees now that he has fallen and he has lost all his grace and he has lost all of his blessing and he lost all of the, 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 the serenity and the beauty and the, the joy that is found in heaven. And now he is completely separated from God and, and experiencing also um, that torment of separation. Right, And so he wants us to experience it as well. He doesn't want us to have what he used to have. He wants to be completely against us so that we share in his own torment. Also, he is an opportunist, meaning he wants to seize every opportunity to take advantage of it. For instance, we see in the example when the Lord Jesus Christ was in the wilderness. The devil saw that he was fasting for 40 days, and he took this opportunity, even for Christ himself. He took this opportunity. He says, well, he's hungry. I'm going to go tempt him with hunger, right? And actually, it's interesting because what is it that Satan tempted Christ with? What is it that he tempted him with? He tempted him with food, which in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with it, right? But Christ was fasting, and so the temptation was to break the fast, right? So Christ had decided that he was to fast, and so this was a temptation to break the fast. He used this opportunity that the Lord was hungry. This goes to the idea that whenever we try to do a good work, whenever we try to do an ascetic practice, whenever we try to pray more, whenever we try to go to church more, whenever we try to, um, you know, build a virtue in ourselves and to tear down a vice, this is when he comes and he attacks all the more fiercely because he knows that we are trying to do a good work, right? So he is um, an opportunist. Chapter three, what are some of the intrigues of the devil, meaning what are some of the methods, the ways that the devil uses to, um, to tempt, to tempt the people. Now certainly there are you know, very, very many unique situations and all the situations are, are different, but there are certain things that we see patterns again and again and again of how the devil um, kind of tempts um, God's children. The first one is a sin hidden in the guise of a virtue, right? So, for instance, the devil might cause us or tempt us to sin, and but, but the sin that we are falling into, we are labeling it as something else, right? So, for instance, um, you know, we might, uh, uh, parents, for instance, in raising our children, right? Maybe under the guise of discipline, under the guise of wanting to teach our children good morals and principles, we are very, very harsh on them. We are even aggressive or get angry or lose our temper. And we, we, can, we say to ourselves, well, we're trying to teach our children the right thing. We're trying to, to instill in them good principles. Yeah, but how are we doing it? We are doing it with vice. We are doing it with kind of abuse, right? We are doing it while being too aggressive. We don't have a balance in the way that we 
do things. So this is an example of we are doing something that's a sin, but we b- are convinced in ourselves that it's right. You know, there are situations sometimes where maybe um, somebody is doing something wrong in the church, right? Something that needs to be corrected. But the person who comes to correct them in the name of the zeal of wanting to teach the person the right thing, they correct them with a way that causes offense, that causes them not even want to come to church anymore, right? So what is it that we have gained, right? Like I, I've you know seen stories where, say, somebody is coming to take communion and they're not really aware of the rules, and they come to take communion with their shoes on, for instance. We know you're not supposed to wear shoes, okay? So it's something that should be corrected. Like it's something we say, hey, you shouldn't wear shoes when you come to, um, to take communion. But some people, again, out of their uh, quote-unquote zeal for wanting to make sure that the right thing is what's happening, they come and they come with an extreme attitude, like, like extremely like overreacting to the situation to cause that person to be embarrassed, to cause that person to like not, like not even want to take communion anymore at that point, right? So again, maybe that person is convinced that they are doing something that's a virtue. They're doing something that's good, right? To, to, to establish the right rules and make sure that people are following them for the sanctity of the place and so on. But maybe they are doing it in a, in a way that actually has the opposite effect. Um, destroying one virtue uh, to gain another right? Um, Maybe a person who is leading a life of meekness and quietness and calmness and so on, and then, uh, you know, the devil turns him to become angry against another person for their sins, right? A person who is normally very calm and serene, right? And then they come again to a situation that they're trying to correct, causes them to lose their peace. So maybe what they had, this virtue of, of peace, is destroyed by something else. Maybe we experience this all the time, again, as parents, like, right? Like parents, maybe you're enjoying a moment of peace and meditation and quietness and you, prayer and so on. And then our kids come and do something and they completely destroy the peace because we get angry at them, right? It's not the fault of the children. It's our fault because we allow ourselves to lose that peace by becoming angry. Again, we are trying to do something good, raising our children, teaching them what's right. But we do it by maybe going overboard in doing so. Um, Using virtues out of their place, meaning when there's a time for repentance, this is when we are thinking to offer mercy instead of repentance. And when there's a time for mercy, maybe this is the time that we're offering judgment. Applying the right virtue at the wrong time is a vice. Taking something that is good, but applying it at the wrong time is wrong. Meaning when somebody commits a sin, right? We shouldn't be saying, oh, you know, God is merciful and so on, unless they repent. When they repent, then we say, oh, yes, God is merciful and he accepts you and so on. But someone who's refusing to repent, we don't come in to that person and say, well, God is merciful. No, God's mercy does not apply except for those who are coming in repentance. So using a virtue out of place. Another is planting suspicions, okay? Um, the devil puts in us suspicions about... Um, God. Is God really real? Does God really forgive my sins? Has God actually forgiven me? And we begin to doubt, right, whether I'm actually forgiven, whether I have salvation, whether I'm going to go to heaven or not. And this disturbs us and to makes us to feel like maybe it's hopeless. And there's no point in me even trying to struggle because in the end, I will always lose. You know, if we have the mentality that I have to be perfect in my actions in order to inherit the kingdom of God, and we know ourselves that we are imperfect and that we will never be perfect, there is no amount of struggle 
that I'm, I will feel like I can do. I, will, I should not even try because I will never achieve perfection. But if we believe instead that we try you know, our best with what we can do, and God covers our weakness, and God covers what we cannot do, then you approach it with joy, and you approach it with a sense of hope, but the devil plants suspicions in us. He makes us to feel like, no, perfection is what is required, and unless you have perfection, there's no point in even trying, which is the war of despair as well, right? The, the, the devil um, kind of tempts us with sin so that our sins increase, and then we feel like God could never forgive me. There is no way that I could be forgiven for the sin, or maybe I've committed the unforgivable sin, which is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and we are just fallen to despair, right? And so, again, there we have to be discerning, you know, in the way that we apply the Word of God. Because if all we meditate on is God's judgment and God's righteousness and all this, and then I begin to feel like there is no way that I could live up to this standard, then maybe I fall into despair, right? And so I also have to remember the mercy of God. Um, number six, the devil is very adaptable. You know, like today in the sermon, we talked about flexibility. Um, he is very flexible. He can change his plans very easily. He looks at the situation and decides what is the best way to tempt a person, okay? He doesn't have like a fixed uh, way that he, that he does, so it's hard for us sometimes to discover or to realize or understand how is it that he is fighting against us? Because, again, he is very crafty. Another temptation that he, 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 he tempts us with is the temptation of sadness, right? Kind of like we are reacting to things that are happening in the world that cause us to fall into sadness and despair and depression because we are upset about things that are happening around us. And we become so fixated by the problems that we have in the world and the sadness that comes from them that we have no energy or no joy to pray. We feel like God is, is unable to fix the problems that I have. We, f we look at the world and see it as just a dark place where there is no place for God in it. And we are just sad. Every day we are sad, sad, sad. And, 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 and in that sadness, we forget God. We forget that God has power. We forget that God is present. We forget that God is able to make a positive change in me and in my life. And that, that God's promises, you know, have promised me eternal life. We focus on the problems uh, of the day and we become very sad. And this sadness leads us to spiritual paralysis. Uh, another temptation is the temptation of speed. Meaning what? Um, the devil wants us to take decisions very fast, right? And God says what? That we should take time. Like those who are wise, they take time, they deliberate, they seek counsel, they pray, they try to find what is the best um, decision to make. Whereas those people who are foolish, they make decisions based on their emotions in an instant, you know? A lot of times maybe we've all experienced where somebody does something um, they shouldn't have done and our reaction in the minute on the spot is to yell at them is to get angry is to say hurt for words to them because in our mind we're thinking well this was wrong and I have to say something about it and then maybe we regret this decision and that we know that if we had waited until we were calmer and then we approached the situation we would have done so in a more effective way in a in a in a way that actually would have a better effect the devil wants us to act in the moment instantly because acting in, in instantly, we don't take time to think of the consequences of our actions. Number nine is the extended gradual advance. What does this mean? It's about how the devil can begin to 
Like he has this very, very long-term plan. And the plan is very subtle. And we cannot detect the plan because the plan is so long-term that we do not see it in action. But the devil begins to tempt us with very, very small things that don't seem at all related to each other so that we will eventually kind of fall into his plan that will come to fruition in a long time. And he gives this story about this man named uh, Jacob the Struggler. Okay, I'm going to read it for you because uh, it's very... Um, it's a, it's, it's a very eye-opening story. So this, the story goes like this. The daughter of a certain king was possessed of an unclean spirit, which no one could cast out. They brought her to St. Jacob the Struggler, who prayed for her, and the unclean spirit was cast out. But when she returned to her country, the spirit returned to her. They brought her again to the saint. He prayed for her, and the spirit was cast out. As soon as she arrived in her country, the spirit returned once more, and they brought her to the saint for the third time. The scheme of the devil was repeated many times till they got weary of traveling many times. At last, the king decided to leave the princess with the saint. They built a room for her, and whenever the devil overthrew her, they brought her to him and then left her with him all the time. When they saw that she had become calm, they left her and returned to their country. With time, there was familiarity between them, which developed into sin. She conceived by him, and he feared the sin would be discovered, and he would be defamed, and the king might kill him. The devil suggested to him to kill her. So he killed her and buried her in a far place in the desert. Months passed and the king's messengers came to inquire after her safety. But the saint concealed his crime with a lie and told them the devil overthrew her once and she shot out and escaped. No one could catch her and she disappeared. So they believed him because he was trusted, right? Thus the devil gave him three blows and overthrew him in adultery, murder, and lying. All this developed gradually, and the beginning never suggested the end. If you look at this story, you know, the human perception of what was going on was very different than what actually was happening. When they brought this demon-possessed woman to St. Jacob the Struggler, it says that he prayed for her and the demon was cast out. Now, seeing the story, maybe we question, was really the demon cast out, or did the demon choose to leave to make it as though he is the only one who can help her with this situation so that they would go grow close together. And eventually, when the family realized that the demon kept coming back again and again, they allowed her to live there in the same place as him, which developed into the sin. So this was the plan. This was the devil's plan from the beginning. And this took years and years and years for this plan to come to fruition and come to this end. And no one all along the way could say that this is what actually was going to happen, right? This is why monks have a very strict rule about interacting with women, right, and, and living in the same place as women, right? It has nothing to do with a specific situation. It has nothing to do with whether this specific monk is strong or not. It has nothing to do with whether this is an upright woman or not. There are certain things that are simply not done because the devil can use it eventually to lead into sin. So it's not about the individual case. This is why it's not advised for, like, men and women who are unmarried to spend a lot of time together or to speak to one another or to have physical contact with each other. Why? Because it can very, very easily, in the long run, lead to something that was unexpected, something that was not planned or understood from the beginning. So that is the extended gradual advance. The tenth way that the devil tempts us is with tiny matters. Okay? The tiny things 
are the things that maybe we don't have our guard up about them, right? Someone maybe says, you know what, I'm going to cheat on my taxes, right? Who doesn't do that? Something very simple. And I'm going to just save a few dollars, right, in my, in my tax return. Um, and I feel even that I deserve it because the government takes too much money anyway, and I get cheated out of so many things. And so I might as well just, and no one is going to know, and it's a small thing, right? And so the person gets used to doing that, right? But then after some time, now they have, you know, the comfort with this approach. They begin to apply this principle to other things and other relationships and bigger and bigger things, right? Because if the devil came to us, kind of similar to the previous point of the gradual advance, if the devil came to us with a really big sin all at once, maybe we would be, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go rob a bank. I'm not going to, you know. But if he comes with very small things, things that are, seem appealing, things that seem harmless, then over time we grow into sin. We grow into larger and larger and larger sins. And this is the story with St. Jacob the Struggler as well. You know, if the devil had tempted him from the very beginning with a fornication, he would have said no. But he allowed him to have a relationship with this woman over time until he could not um, overcome his own desires. Another means of temptation of the devil is postponement, right? For instance, the devil maybe doesn't come to us and say, prayer is not important, right? Maybe if the thought prayer is not important comes to us, we would say, no, that's false. Uh, of course, we believe prayer is important. Or you know what? Going to church and taking communion is not important. No, maybe that thought doesn't come to us. But it'll s he'll say it is important, but not right now. It is important, but you have an activity you have to do. It is important, but you're very tired. It's important, but you still have tomorrow, right? And so everything gets postponed. And so at no point in time do we really kind of believe against what God said, but we're always postponing it. And over time, we realize that tomorrow never comes. Every tomorrow is another tomorrow. And then if you look back, we realize, you know what, I've been going for years, you know, doing a certain thing, and it's become a habit and a routine now. And I, for me to start having a prayer life again, for me to start reading the Bible again, for me to start doing some good spiritual practice again, it's now extremely difficult because I've been postponing it for so long. Um, involvement or being busy, right? We are all very busy. You know, every time somebody says, I'm very busy, I'm like, yeah, that's the normal, right? Everybody is busy all the time. It has nothing to do with how busy we are. That's just normal life right? There isn't many people who are not busy. Maybe when you retire, then you won't be as busy, and you don't have any kids to raise, then you won't be as busy, right? But how is it that we are called to serve God, to worship God? You know, everything that Christ said in the Gospels about what is necessary for our spiritual health doesn't stop simply because we are busy. Just like our physical nourishment, our, our need of physical nourishment doesn't, doesn't stop because we're busy. You could be so busy, but you still have to eat, right? There is no, it's not like once you reach a certain threshold of busyness, now your body exempts you from food. You don't need to eat because you don't have time to eat. You don't have to eat. No, we have to eat, right? And we make time to eat because we know it is essential, right, for the body. The same is true with the spiritual things. When we don't make time for the spiritual things because we are so involved in many things, it can damage us. And this is even true for serving in the church, for instance. Like some people, their relationship with the church is, I am a servant. 
I come and I serve. And every time I come to the church, my mind is so uh, preoccupied with whatever task that I'm called for. I have to do the food in the kitchen. I have to volunteer in this. I have to teach Sunday school. I have to prepare this. I have to clean this. I have to do. And in, and after this, their whole like idea of what it means to come to church is tied up with the services that they do, right? This is also can be a temptation, right? Because the main purpose of coming to church is not to do something, but it is to receive. It is to receive the Holy Spirit. It is to receive the body of Christ. It is to receive like communion with the Lord, right? Yes, we serve God as well, right? And I'm not saying that's not important, but the core reason why we come is not to give something, but it is to receive something. So we can become so involved in all of our activities, whether in the church or out of the church, that we completely, you know, are not even aware of or thinking about our relationship with God. Okay, this is a good stopping point. Any questions or comments before we conclude yes no so the question is does the devil have knowledge of the future he doesn't have knowledge of the future and he cannot read our minds okay but he is successful because of his because he is very clever um, and he is very experienced so he sees how our present actions what they will lead to not because he can see the future but because we are all very similar to one another you know like if we were you know if he's looking at all of these different human beings and how we all kind of follow very similar patterns right so he knows that if a person gets caught up in this specific thing it'll eventually lead to this so so even though he doesn't have direct knowledge of the future he can infer what will happen yeah yes Yeah, I had the same question. Yeah, it's like right only. Like, um, so he, he can put thoughts, but he doesn't know what we're actually thinking, okay? So he has restrictions and limitations on him. Though that's what we believe. We believe that he can hear what we say, okay? But he can't read our thoughts. But again, he can infer because he has so much experience. He can tell what we're getting ready to do simply by our actions, because he is observing us all the time, right? So he doesn't actually have to read our thoughts in order to be successful in tempting us because he's, he's so experienced. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask, O Lord, for your blessing, and we ask uh, you to make us aware of all of the intrigues of the devil and his characteristics and the way that he fights against us. Protect us, O Lord, from him, because we are weak and we have no power in ourselves to stand against him. We ask, O Lord, that you fill us with strength so that we do not fall for his attacks or his temptations or his deceptions. Help us, O Lord, always to be aware of his presence and also to be aware of your presence, that you are always fighting on our behalf and to call out to your name, O Lord, for strength and protection. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, 
Hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion of the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.